Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. I write for FromTheRumbleSeat.com, covering Georgia Tech, the SB Nation Network. Joining me tonight, as always, my co-host, Mike McDaniel, covering the whole conference for InsideTheACC.com. Mike, you consider yourself a golfer? Joey, I do. Um, What's going on, man? I've heard that you may or may not have done something pretty uncharacteristic on the links this weekend so uh, let's hear about that yeah let's say I had a, a bit of a life-changing moment I know that you yourself are a golfer is that correct I definitely am yep I'm I'm a big time golfer in my mind um I play <laughs> I play I mean I play I play a good bit with my dad and friends and you know I'm about like a nine or ten handicap so I'm I'm decent I don't play as much as I'd like to but um, I enjoy getting out every once in a while yeah for sure I think there are plenty of listeners that would take a 9 or 10 handicap over whatever they are immediately. Maybe I'm wrong, but so, yes, I was out on the golf course yesterday, and uh, last hole was about 100 yards out. as a par 4 tee shot, got me about 100 yards out. May have, may have improved my lie a little bit and, you know, done, done what I had to do, but uh, ended up taking my second shot on the hole and hold it in from about 100 yards out with a 9-iron. Ayo. It's going, going uphill, so don't give me crap about using a 9-iron from that distance. But, uh, yeah, it was a pretty uh, like life-changing, once-in-a-lifetime moment. I feel like a whole new man. It's I, like The sun shined a little brighter today. It's It's been uh, it's been a good weekend, I'd say. Hole, hole out from the rough, so it's not even out of the fairway. It's out of the rough, which makes it even more impressive, Joey. Absolutely, and so I, I may never make a shot quite that good again, and so at least I've got this memory now to, to go on. Yeah, definitely, and even if you do make a shot like that again, you'll continue to go out and play golf because of that first shot that you made uh, from the rough. You know, it'll keep you coming back for sure. Absolutely, got to try to make it happen again, whether I do or don't. Um, either way, though, you uh, you play any golf lately? Um, have not played any golf within the last week and a half. I played about two weeks ago, and my dad, uh, Captain 20 Handicap, but I love playing with him because he pulls out miraculous feats like this. He actually, um, about two years ago, um, got his first hole-in-one, which was insane. I was there in person. It was like 158-yard par three, so he knocks it in for his first hole-in-one. So that was a pretty crazy moment. Um, Jeez only matched by his second hole-in-one about 16 months later. So he's a 20 handicap with two hole-in-ones. I'm a 9 to 10 handicap, depending on the day, and have zero hole-in-ones, and haven't really been close either. Um, I've never really hit the stick or anything like that. So um, my dad goes out and does stuff like that, but I played with him a couple of weeks ago, and he birdies the first hole. He comes out on the second hole and chips in for another birdie, and he was two under through two holes, and all of a sudden I'm playing catch-up to my dad, uh, the 20-something handicap with a couple hole-in-ones, and now a chip-in birdie, and all of a sudden now um, I'm buying more beer because my dad's now chipping in, getting hole-in-ones, doing all this crazy crap. 
Um, but yeah, no, I played a couple weeks ago, shot a 90, so that was probably one of my worst rounds in the last three or four months, but um, had a good time, though. Well, again, I would take that 90 in a heartbeat if, uh, if that was the worst round you know I was shooting, so... Anyways, if we want to make this conversation ACC relevant, uh, we could say that as we record here Sunday night, it was earlier today that Georgia Tech alumnus Mark Kuchar uh, won a bronze medal for the United States in the Olympics in the first golf competition, I guess you could say, in the Olympics um, over a century. So uh, ACC alumni and Georgia Tech alumni doing it big. Uh, figured I'd get that in there. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Uh Good for Kuchar, though, huh? Getting the U.S. a medal in an event that hasn't been in the Olympics in 100 years. So uh, quite the feat. And something that may really only go unmatched to perhaps the next Olympics in 2020, because after that we're not sure if golf is going to stick around or not. They're going to reevaluate. So this might be only a true once or twice in a lifetime event for not only Kuchar, but for Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson, who got gold and silver respectively in that event this afternoon. Probably also worth mentioning here that it was a couple of weeks ago that Kuchar actually found out about the format of the event. He <laughs> he thought they were playing a team game and found out it was not a team game. It was an individual game. His so. instinct his instinct was correct, but the fact that he didn't know that it was stroke play made it all uh, just a lot funnier that he ends up finishing third, getting the bronze medal, and didn't even know what the format was coming into the thing. So that's true uh, Matt Kuchar style for sure. That guy was doing it live. No doubt. Um, okay, Mike, we need to get in and actually talk some football on this football podcast. Um, so we got a couple of listener questions we're going to start out here with. Not reader questions, as I said last week. I should point that out. Um, we're going to do listener questions here up front, and then we've got our last three season previews coming up later. Uh, we'll, we'll get into those here in a little bit. But we'll start with uh, the two listener questions we had left over from last week. Uh, we've not gotten any on, on Twitter or by email, so... Uh, just know that if you send them in, you will be getting some special attention from us. Uh, <laughs> our attention is not very divided right now, so uh, send those in as you as you come up with them. But question number one from user JT, oh, JGT Engineer. Um, question is, why is it that pro-style offenses get shut down by a better defense while other offenses suffer system failure in a poor performance? So this is a, a bit of a, I think, a semantics uh, question. Um, kind of, you know, why do people treat it one way versus another? But I think, first of all, we should point out, Mike, that we, we don't have a whole lot of traditional pro-style offenses left in college football anymore. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that. So you think about pro-style offenses, at least ones that are any good, and who do we look at? Um, okay, Alabama and Southern Cal. And now we can sit here and pause and wait for the next team. I'm not sure who that is. Um, the way I look at it is I'm not sure offenses necessarily suffer system failure um, in a poor performance or a pro-style offense getting shut down by a better defense. I mean, I think when you look at it, I think a lot of defenses across college football now are preparing for that spread offense. Um and I think when you see a pro-style offense get shut down, it's because they don't have the personnel to run the pro-style offense. You've got a coordinator coming in maybe from the professional level. Um, you get somebody that's you know conventionally run that pro-style, and all of a sudden you get you know get into the college game, and the pro-style just doesn't really work if you don't have the right personnel. And so much of the college game now is predicated on speed. 
um, and the fact that you know you have offensive players that can spread you out um, and, and put pressure on the defense and kind of go up tempo. And you know the offenses that run the pro style attack, they have a really solid offensive line, multiple linemen to get picked in the draft, and they have a running back that can carry the ball 30 or 40 times a game, not really get tired, be that big physical back that um, that you need in that kind of offense. And there are only a handful of teams in college football that have that. So I wouldn't say that you know other offenses suffer system failure. I mean, I, I don't see it like that at all. Um, I think it's the fact that pro-style offenses just aren't that prevalent across college football right now. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, we see kind of ebbs and flows with offensive schemes across college football. You know, one year it's a spread, the next year it's a pro style. Um, way back in the day it was a single wing. Um, and, and the offenses have really evolved across college football um, over the last 20 or 30 years, and now the spread is all the rage because of how many athletes you can put on the field at one time. So, you know, I, I don't think – system failure, poor performance, that whole thing, I don't really buy into it. I think it's just the fact that, you know, pro-style offenses just aren't really that prevalent in college football right now. Well, you talk about personnel, and that's the the big key to me is that to, to run a good pro-style offense, it takes good personnel. You have to have a good offensive line. You have to have a quarterback that can make some reads. It's not always a very sexy system, so to speak. Maybe a, a spread system is much easier to run. Your, your athletes need to be probably less complete. Um, you know, you, you don't have to have guys that are capable of reading defenses and, and doing 10 different things at once if they could just do two, you know, one or two things. So um, that, that's kind of the, the big reason you don't see as many pro offenses anymore is spread systems are just easier to run with the way that, you know, the field is set up in college football and the, the level of talent that you need there versus at other places. Um, and then conversely, I mean, that's part of where you get this whole system failure thing from is, well, a spread system is meant to be easier and meant to be more adaptable to to less uh, complete personnel, we'll say. And so if something does go wrong, well, then the system has kind of failed in a sense. Um, now, there's plenty to be said for defenses able to actually shut down these offenses. And I think one of the big things that kind of gets overlooked in terms of quote-unquote shutting down a spread offense is the battle at the line of scrimmage. Uh, you can stop Oregon's offense, as Stanford has shown us several times in the last decade, just by beating them up on the offensive line and cutting off running lanes. Um, things like that, you know, you can shut those systems down, but ultimately it's just it's kind of the way that these things get looked at. I, I, don't, I don't know that it's uh, a super different thing to say either it got shut down or the system failed um, but yeah I mean it's just it it's kind of a na uh, the nature of the beast right now in college football you've got all these spread offenses for several reasons and um, pretty uh, kind of the, the pro style offense is a little bit of a dying breed right now yeah, I was going to say, um, the only thing I really have left to add to this is just the fact that you mentioned Stanford. Stanford's probably another pretty good example of a pro-style-esque type offense with Kevin Hogan, especially the last few years um, before, of course, he moved on to the NFL. Um, you know, having a guy like McCaffrey obviously helps because he does a little bit of everything, catch the ball out of the backfield on screen passes, those swing passes that they love to run there. They give the, give the ball to him on toss plays, and um, they're really kind of just – trying to find ways to get their playmakers the ball. So it can still be done in pro-style offenses. Of course, Alabama got the ball any way they could to Amari Cooper uh, when he was uh, running all over the SEC. 
um, you know, catching long passes and doing all the things that he was doing. So it can definitely be done. It's not like, uh, you know, the spread is the only way to do it. It's just kind of what's hip to college football right now. Absolutely. All right. Unless you had anything else on that, we'll move on to our other listener question for tonight. This comes from user Fulltime Savage from From the Rumble Seat. Uh, My man, Fulltime Savage. Once again, keeping it 100 with that username. Um, <laughs> that's what the kids are saying these days, right? Yeah, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Fulltime Savage asks, most ACC teams are using spread off option offenses now. Does the lack of pro-style offense in the ACC heavily contribute to its national perception as a weaker conference? So, again, kind of staying with the same theme of pro-style offenses versus spread offenses. And, and I think maybe if you, if you want to look at it in a certain way of, you know, it's, it's a sign of weakness, it might be things like your offensive linemen aren't as big, aren't as strong, they're a little more team. mobile. Or your team just sucks. Or your also. team just sucks. That could also yeah, be a, a way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> it you know, there, there's a. I think maybe that's the perception is that they're they're less physical. They're less um, kind of, I guess, dominant down in the trenches, and they're a little more focused on speed and creating space and all that. But, um, but ultimately. I don't know that it does, just because, again, with how college football is these days, there are so many spread offenses. And even you look at something like Clemson, I mean, that's a that's a spread offense that they run, and it's it was dominant last year, and it got them to the national title game. Um, so my, I, I don't know. I mean, do you do you think that the spread offense prevalence does anything negative for reputation and, and image, I guess, so to speak? I don't. Um, Boston College and Wake Forest – both run pro style-esque type offenses and they are two of the worst offenses in college football so why do you want I mean would you rather have a spread offense that works or a pro style offense that doesn't work and I think that's the way that a lot of people have to look at it I don't think it's a matter of oh it's a national perception that we're weak because we use the spread I mean 90% of college football is using the spread right now if you're not using the spread you better be using something that's just as effective it's going to score you just the same amount of points or more points um, than the opposing spread offenses. So Georgia Tech's a good example, Joey, right? So they're running the option offense, and historically, now last year notwithstanding, they've scored a lot of points using that offense. Ball control, go up and down the field, not really a huddling offense. They just kind of go up to the line and run their stuff, and it works, and they score a lot of points with it. Um, Your offense better work if you're not going to run the spread, and it works at Alabama. It's worked historically at Southern Cal. Stanford's another good example. Um, but it, for those examples of different types of offenses, there's the same kind of offense with Wake Forest and Boston College that hasn't worked. So, you know, I, I think if your team sucks and your offense sucks, you have a weak offense. I don't think the conference as a whole is weak because they're running an offense that you don't like. So that's the way I'd look at it. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many people look through it as a lens of, oh, we're not running a pro-style offense in the ACC as often, so now we're a weaker conference. I'm not sure how many people um, necessarily hold that belief, but if they do, I guess my my answer to that would be, hey, listen, you know, we're going to run the offense that we think is going to be best suited for our personnel, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, then we'll find another offensive coordinator and some personnel where it does work. So, um that's the way I would look at it uh, to answer full-time Savage's question. But uh, not a bad question. I'm just not really sure how many people 
um, look at it that way. So I'm actually kind of curious uh, for the podcast maybe next week or down the road. Um, maybe we can kind of throw that question back out on Twitter or something like that. How many people think that um, the ACC has a national perception as a weak conference because they don't run as many you know pro-style looks? I think that would be something good to kind of research down the line. Ultimately, there are there are going to be two measures of success, I would say, for any offense. And that's how many points do they score and are they not turning the ball over? Um, if you can find an offense that scores you a lot of points and that doesn't kind of in, result in a, a bunch of turnovers, you're a successful offense and you're going to be a, a dangerous team. Um, a lot of college football anymore is who can just score the most points. And that sounds like an oversimplification of what football really is, but it's it's not so much about scoring more than the, well, I don't know, I'm kind of talking myself into a circle here, but it, it's it's more about who can outscore everybody else versus, uh, Mike, do you know what I mean? Like, it's the, the goal here is to score a lot of points, not necessarily just more than your opponent. I don't know. This is, maybe I'll cut this I, section out. I, no, I <laughs> No, I mean, every every week what you're looking for here is to score more than your opponent, but you want offense that stays sustainable and that's consistent every week. Not a not an offense that's going to score you like 40 points per game one week and show up and score you 15 points the next. So you want the most consistent offense you possibly can. And if you're putting up 30 or 40 points per game, that's when you know you've kind of reached the peak of that offense and you know something you can rely upon. But if you're not consistent, then what good is it really doing? I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, it's, it's consistency as well as, I think if you compare it to maybe 10, 15 years ago, the the scoring offense numbers have gone way up across the board. Um, there's way less uh, there's way less kind of emphasis on what the defense is doing. Really, if you if you have a successful offense, that's what that's what ultimately matters for the team more often than not. So there's a few sides to this, but um, anyways, yeah, just interesting question. Uh, certainly from full time Savage, and I do appreciate it. So, um, yeah, keep uh, keep sending those questions in if you if you come up with them again on Twitter uh, or via email or or any other way that you can find to to contact us. Send ravens and smoke signals and whatever you got. So we would uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, please. And full time Savage, I wasn't just destroying your question here. I was kind of just putting it out there. It sounded like I was kind of going after you at first. Definitely wasn't. So please keep sending your questions. Huge help. No doubt. Mike, that does it for for listener questions this week. Uh, Before we get into the season previews, and I forgot to mention this earlier, we do have a bit of news uh, from the conference that we need to talk about because this is potentially pretty big impact stuff that came down uh, here just in the last couple of days. Down at Florida State, uh, returning senior quarterback Sean McGuire had some some sort of ankle injury. uh, Did he... Do we know if he broke it or kind of what happened? Uh, kind of disputing reports here. It's ankle, it's foot, um, lower limb. He needs some surgery is what it's looking like, Joey. Lower extremities and uh, will be out for several weeks to start the season, meaning Florida State's going to go into game one uh, against Ole Miss with a brand-new quarterback. The and French wonder. The French wonder is what it's looking like. One DeAndre Francois. Um, is projected to be your starter day one at Florida State. And now 
a very, very talented guy. I think kind of cut out of the same mold of, of Jameis Winston of some athleticism, but a very good passer, very strong arm. A lot of talent there, but also a, a redshirt freshman where he's going to have his freshman moments. And Mike, does this does this change how you view Florida State's chances a against Ole Miss or B to accomplish their season goals and kind of reach their potential as a team? Well, with the Ole Miss game, I think it would help having Sean McGuire in a quarterback just because you're playing an SEC defense in the first game of the season. Um, having a guy with experience there would definitely help. But, Joe, you know I've kind of been lobbying for DeAndre Francois for a while. Um, I think he's got the talent uh, to definitely step in and, and play a huge role for Florida State. He was one of my top five quarterbacks I picked in the preseason. Um in the conference just because I think the potential is there for him to be really good. Now, like you said, he's going to have his freshman moments, but when looking at their schedule, once again, I mean, quickly, they, they don't really have a lot of time for him to develop. I mean, you're throwing him into the Ole Miss game, and then Charleston Southern, I guess, is where he can technically get his feet wet. But after that, it's at Louisville, at South Florida. you got a home game against UNC. You're playing at Miami um, for that next four-game stretch there. And so he's going to have to play well from the get-go. He's not going to have a ton of time to really, um, you know, sit there and get his feet wet, get his feet under him, and kind of he's going to be taking a lot of live shots early here, and he's going to have to play as well as he possibly can. As far as the Ole Miss game is concerned, I mean, they just need to ride Dalvin Cook, and I think that was going to be a strategy anyway. And then hope Francois is just kind of good enough um, to get them by. And... I think that was kind of what we were saying, even if Sean McGuire was going to be the quarterback. He just needed to kind of sit there and not make any mistakes. And I think it's going to be the same kind of look for DeAndre Francois. Just don't take your team out of the game. Don't take your offense out of it. Don't throw a lot of interceptions. Don't fumble. Don't do anything real stupid. Um, Just try to uh, run your stuff and give the ball to Alvin Cook. Rely on him as much as you can. Just try to get your ball to your playmakers and try to simplify things because I think if you overcomplicate things, especially as a freshman, uh, it's going to be really tough, especially against a defense that is, good as, that is as good as Ole Miss's. I think that's a good way of looking at it is that when you when you put Francois in there as your starter, as a redshirt freshman, and obviously Jimbo Fisher's going to know exactly what he's capable of and what they can trust him with and everything else, but the goal is not to go out and win the game. The goal is to go out and not lose the game for Francois himself. The Seminoles are loaded with talent on that offense and just in general. And so if you put Francois into a little more of like a facilitation role, maybe more so than like a dynamic playmaker Heisman candidate type of role that you want to be like the focus of your team, I think that there's still plenty of confidence to be had in Florida State even early on as they have a, a, a pretty nasty stretch there right out of the gate. Um, you mentioned that Ole Miss game in the opener, and then you get a, a bit of a bye week against Charleston Southern, and then at Louisville, at USF, home against North Carolina, at Miami. I mean, that's a pretty brutal little stretch right right out of the gate before you get Wake Forest week off in Clemson. The good news is that Sean McGuire is supposed to be coming back probably at the end of September, maybe. Uh, it's going to be a few games out, but he should be returning uh, before the midpoint of the season. So if you're Florida State and things are looking shaky or going south even, you you have the ability to bring in McGuire to kind of maybe steady the ship a little bit. Not that I would say that 
Maguire was the single best guy to bring in to do that, even looking at last year. But um, it's it it's not the ultimate end of the world, and it, it at the very worst, you know, you, you're going to cost yourself maybe a few games here or there. But still, a very very talented team, and a guy, and, and a guy now and going to be in a, a role where he's he's plenty talented himself and is capable of a lot. So it's just a matter of what Florida State's able to do with it. Yeah, just don't turn the ball over, and I think that's kind of what we were alluding to anyway. Just as long as he um, comes in, just knows his role, knows that he has a lot of really good playmakers around him, and that was going to be regardless of who the quarterback was going to be. So if it wasn't going to be DeAndre Francois and it was going to be Sean McGuire, I mean, it was going to be the same sort of thing because we know after seeing Sean McGuire play that he kind of has a limited ceiling anyway. So um, just don't turn the football over and they'll be fine, but um, obviously – a situation there at Florida State that gives you a little bit of pause heading into the season. Obviously, huge news dropping here just three weeks before the opener. Yeah, the future of the Florida State offense now coming up a lot quicker than we thought it might. But before I struggle with uh, any more football euphemism saying don't win the game or anything like that, let's just go don't ahead and move on. Run your offense. Yeah, <laughs> run, exactly. Run your offense good, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> This, this golf game has uh, started distracting me, apparently. Anyways, let's move into season previews here. Uh, so we've got three teams left. We're going to start with Wake Forest, then we'll move into Louisville and Notre Dame. So as we, we've said before, we've kind of themed these weeks out. We had our wheelhouse with Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, and Virginia the first week. We did the former Big East with Syracuse, Pittsburgh, and Boston College. We did... Uh, Tobacco Road last week, this was North Carolina, Duke, and NC State. Two weeks ago, we did the heart of the order, kind of the, the, the blue bloods, the heavyweights, uh, Florida State, Clemson, and Miami. And so now, like this leaves us with Wake Forest, Louisville, and Notre Dame, the section that we are lovingly calling the potpourri or the et cetera or the misfits or <laughs> whatever. The misfits. Uh, yeah, whatever you want to call them. Um, Teams that we just couldn't really find a great way to fit them in with anybody else, but teams that we need to talk about, including partial ACC member Notre Dame here. But we will start with Wake Forest. Wake Forest coming into the year, we'll see how much we can say about them. We both agreed that we don't really know much of any of their personnel. Looking through the roster and through some of their stats, leaders, and such from last year, it's like I knew almost none of the names except for maybe like Brandon Chubb on defense was a, a real good linebacker. Outside of that, there is not a whole lot of much to speak of on this Wake Forest team from last year. Um, and so the, the thing is that as a team, they bring back a ton of experience and pretty much all of their production from last year. Uh, I think they only lose like two starters on offense and uh, what maybe three on defense? Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty it's a pretty consistent group from last year, which is good news in general in college football. The problem is that the group last year was not very productive or impressive. Terrible. They were terrible. They were. <laughs> I think terrible is probably a good word for it. Yeah, um, they they were not good. So is, I, in, in some sense, it's nice that you bring back everybody. In another sense, you wish you had new players. It's like, right. Well, yeah, and they're losing their best player, their punter, Alice Canal, um, who was the NCAA career leader in punts when he graduated last year, 337, and he punted for 14,000 yards in his career. Punting is winning, Mike. 
So that means not only is your offense terrible, but at least you have a good punter. Um, yeah, so hopefully your defense is okay too, which they really weren't. Um, look, Wake Forest, let's start with the good. They're returning a quarterback. Actually, they're returning two quarterbacks. They're returning John Walford, who's going to be a junior. They're returning Kendall Hinton as well. Um who's going into his sophomore season. Um, so Kendall Hinton kind of split snaps with John Wolford in some situations last year. Kendall Hinton is more of a running quarterback. John Wolford is more of the passer out of the two. But truth be told, neither of them are very good. The fact that they are bringing them both back, though, is a positive. He has some consistency under center, so it's not all bad, I guess. Um Sophomore Tyler Bell looks like he'll be the starting running back. The best playmaker on their offense is and has been for the last two years um, and will be again this year. Cam Serenay, their tight end, uh, 6'3", 245. Um, he's been very good. The issue that Wake Forest has is that he's really their only playmaker, and that's what kind of has hampered their offense. Is a, lot of, a lot of the teams they play against um, key on Cam Serenay and ends up being an issue. Um and so when that happened last year, Cortez Lewis, who's another returning guy at receiver, was a guy that kind of came in and got a bunch of the looks as well. And uh, when looking at Cortez Lewis, he had 611 yards last year. That actually led the team. But I would argue that Cam Serenay was probably their biggest threat offensively um, just because he's a guy that kind of attracts the most attention and uh, eats up a lot of the targets. But really only two major playmakers you know, with the receiver and tight end position. I mean, they're bringing back Tabari Hines, who had 366 yards receiving last year and three touchdowns. His three touchdowns receiving were second on the team. Um, so this is not an offense that scores a lot through the air, but it kind of is what it is at this point. Um, we talked about running. So Tyler Bell, who I alluded to him a couple minutes ago, 500 or 450 yards last year and, and a touchdown. So that was really their only um, – rushing attack other than Kendall Hinton at quarterback when he came in every now and again. He had almost 400 yards rushing, but they used him a lot in the red zone, so he ended up with seven touchdowns. Um, passing the ball, he had five interceptions, so only four touchdowns. John Wolford, again, was the guy who threw the ball the most. He had almost 1,800 yards passing, which isn't a ton when you're playing in the ACC, but um, nine touchdowns and 11 interceptions. Obviously, turning the football over was a big problem for the Wake Forest offense. Uh, defensively, losing Brandon Chubb, a guy that you uh, alluded to a couple minutes ago. Um, Wendell Dunn is a two-year starter. He's going to anchor their front seven at defensive end. Um, Brad Watson at corner uh, had 18 passes defended last year as a junior. So they do return uh, some guys in the secondary and on that defensive front that um, are, are pretty decent players. And they also got a guy named Deontay Austin, who's a sophomore. He had a pretty decent freshman campaign last year for them at corner. He was kind of thrust into the fire as a lot of as a lot of pretty decent recruits at Wake Forest are, um, you kind of have to play right away with the state of their program as is right now. So there's a lot of bad with Wake Forest just because, you know, they have a lot of guys returning that just aren't very good. But I guess the one positive you can take away is that they do have the consistency. They kind of know what's expected. and Hopefully they can take the step forward in their development and, and improve heading into this coming season. Well, and the crazy thing is that there's a, a real lack of seniority on this team. Um, I guess there's about five senior starters on defense. On offense, it's looking like only two, and those are both on the offensive line. 
Um, and then just in general, there's a ton of sophomores that look like they'll be in starting roles. So kind of a kind of a weird team construction going on right now with Wake Forest. You, you talk about their offense. I mean, this was, no matter how you slice it up, this was one of the absolute worst offenses in the country, one of the worst rushing attacks. That's a, that was a major problem is that Tyler Bell led the team 129 carries for 451 yards, averaging 3.5 yards per carry across the season, averaging 37.5 yards per game, um, which is just heartbreaking. Uh, it's like, I, I just, man, that would be hard to watch. And this is probably a lot of why you and I don't really know a ton about a lot of the players in this team or what kind of what to expect from them is, it's kind of hard to bring yourself to watch them at times. This is this has been a tough a tough go of it for Wake Forest, but it seems like something that you know they should be improving and kind of building. Uh, there's a lot of talk in a lot of their previews of saying 2016 doesn't figure to be a ton better than 2015 was, but 2017 sounds like the time when this team will turn a bit of a corner and maybe thrust themselves back into the the middle of the ACC Atlantic Division. Uh, I just until then, it, it might continue to be a little bit of some tough times up in Winston-Salem. I was going to say, just for, you know, what I know about Wake Forest, I can attest to the fact I only watched one game of theirs at, let's call it one and a quarter games of theirs last year. So I saw them play against Virginia Tech, obviously. And then I caught, of course, their laughable game against Boston College, where it was like, who would screw up, who would screw up the least um, ends up winning that game. Um, the three and, to nothing win in the most go ACC game of all time, maybe. Yeah, like you can't get the ball snapped at the very end. I mean, it was hysterical. Um, you legitimately can't beat how terrible that game was, uh, start to finish. Um, lucky for me, I missed the first three and a half quarters of it. But um, you know, with Wake Forest, I know that when Virginia Tech was playing them, I, I was looking, you know, kind of at their roster and who they had, and I knew they had John Walford at quarterback. So I remembered him from two years ago when he was a freshman and. Um, I heard a lot about Kendall Hinton, but I didn't really know a ton about, you know, how much he played and that sort of thing. And when I started looking into it, I realized that they really brought him in in, like, situations that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, They brought him in down by the goal line, which, I mean, I guess if you're a running quarterback in the mold of, like, Tim Tebow, I could understand that. But Kendall Hinton is not a huge guy, so that never really made a lot of sense, but ended up working. I mean, he ended up with seven touchdowns rushing the ball, so um, a lot of defense couldn't stop him in that regard. But... They would also bring Kendall Hinton in, like, randomly on, like, second down and 10, so Walford throws an incomplete pass, and all of a sudden here comes Kendall Hinton trotting out on the field. It just never really made a lot of sense the way they split the time with the quarterback play, so maybe that's something that they may want to look into this year. It's how they can maybe improve their packaging and try to get some more consistency on offense. Um, because this whole shuffling of quarterbacks, it's great if it works, but if it doesn't work and your offense is as bad as Wake Forest has been, uh, it's really a tough sell if you're a fan seeing like two quarterbacks thrown out there and Dave Clawson not really making a decision on who he wants to play full-time. So, you know, if both quarterbacks are good enough to warrant playing time as far as the rest of the roster is concerned, I mean, I guess that's fine. But, you know, there's that saying, if you have two quarterbacks, you probably have no quarterback. Um, and that's kind of the issue with Wake Forest that I've seen. Um, this is kind of the prime example of, having two quarterbacks but not really knowing who the true guy is. So maybe that's something Wake Forest will want to look into moving forward. Yeah, I kind of wonder if it might uh, still be that way, even if they were to just pick a quarterback. Um, 
All sorts of not nice things can be said about this team and this just, offense. Just have just have no quarterback, really. I I mean, look, this offense last year, passing and rushing combined, scored twenty five touchdowns the entire year. They were a hundred and thirteenth in the country in total offense, Joey, um, and they were last nationally in total offense two years ago. So, it's improvement, but it's not great improvement. Um, Still one of the worst offenses in college football. Definitely, you know, if Boston College wasn't in the conference, they'd definitely be the worst offense in the ACC. Well, and I'll tell you, that's the the other scary thing is that as bad as they were last year, they were actually 12th out of 14 teams in the conference in total offense, with both Boston College and Syracuse being worse. Um, I didn't realize they had Syracuse beat all, so that's pretty scary. So they were almost right in the middle of the Atlantic Division in terms of total offense if you're that says more that says more about how bad the bottom of the Atlantic division is really than how good Wake Forest was but I didn't have to tell you that one that is fair that is fair so let real quick looking back to last year one more comment on the offense if you had to guess the most points that they scored against an FBS opponent so this does not include the season opener against Elon how many points would you guess and any guesses on the top of your head who who they would have scored that against? Um, it's probably the low to mid twenties. I'm gonna say maybe like twenty three points. Oh, go for a more conventional football number. Uh, twenty four points. Nailed it. Nice. Twenty four points at home against the Indiana Hoosiers on September twenty sixth. Nice. They scored 41 against Elon in week one, and other than that, 24 was the best that they did. Uh, which I was going to say, it could go one of two directions. They're 24 or 21, yep. so neither is very good. Yep. Now, like you like you kind of mentioned, this, this defense has has kind of overperformed for the talent level, so there's, there's, there's kind of a structure there that, that it could be an okay team if – that offense can get it together. It's just that's a, a little bit of a wait-and-see thing, I think, for, for sure. Now, as we look at the schedule for this year, it is it is not anything too overly dangerous. Out of conference, home against Tulane, home against Delaware, at Indiana, home against Army. I think even for a team that is kind of down on its luck and, and just not doing very well like Wake Forest, that's kind of manageable. It's manageable. Um, I mean, you, you figure you could probably go three and one out of conference. Is that crazy to think? Uh, they definitely have the chance to. Um, whether or not they actually make that happen is a whole other thing. I mean, Tulane's interesting because they're bringing in a new offense, right? Like they've completely revamped that coaching staff. Delaware, you're playing an FCS team. Indiana, they may as well be an FCS team. I'm just kidding. Uh, Indiana was actually pretty decent, uh, pretty decent last year for a good bulk, at least of the first part of the year. They're they're heading in the right direction. But if you took like two or three years ago, Indiana may as well have been an FCS team. Um, and then Army, uh, you know, Army, they are what they are, right? So, um, you know, they're a service academy that plays football, and you respect them for all the things they do off the field rather than on the field. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think theoretically you can go three and one. I mean, you got to beat Tulane out of conference because I don't think you're beating Indiana. Um, so if you're gonna have one loss in there, I think it is to the Hoosiers, uh, especially since you have them on the road. But yeah, I think 
three and one is definitely not out of the question. But you got to be Tulane in that opener. Sadly, Delaware might be a little dangerous in there. They tend to be one of the better FCS programs. Uh, Tulane, like you mentioned, they're bringing in Willie Fritz, who was the head coach at Georgia Southern the last couple of years. Before that, I think he won a couple of FCS titles with Sam Houston State. Um, so kind of dangerous there, potentially. But in game one, as bad as they were last year, that might be pretty manageable. And then Army was the only... I guess the only other out-of-conference win you had last year other than Elon. So kind of conceivable they could go 3-1 and one against that slate. Um, and from there, maybe win a couple in conference. Uh, week two, you're at Duke and then at NC State, home against Syracuse, at Florida State, home against Virginia, at Louisville, home against Clemson, home against Boston College. Home against Boston College sounds reasonable. Uh at Duke is not impossible. I, I think that Duke kind of realizes they've got to take wins where they can get them this year, so that might be an uphill battle. Uh, home against Syracuse is probably a, a big turning point game for this team. I don't know. I mean, record-wise, I feel comfortable predicting like four and eight, but I, I could definitely see them getting to like a five and nine, five and nine, five and seven kind of a record, Mike. I was gonna say I'm I'm on board with four and eight. Um, five and seven is not completely inconceivable. Um, look, they have to beat Tulane in the opener. Uh, it's a must win, I think, because you look at the rest of the schedule. At Duke, it's potentially winnable, but Duke's got a lot more talent than Wake Forest has. I mean, for all the talent that Duke is losing. Um, on both sides of the ball, they they still have more talent than Wake Forest does. I expect Duke to win that game. Um, Delaware, I think they'll beat Delaware. I mean, Delaware is a, a decent FCS opponent, but what, you got to beat Delaware. Um, at Indiana's a loss. At NC State, probably a loss. Home against Syracuse, turning point game, I agree. Dino Babers in that offense. I mean, if you put 10 points up against Wake Forest, you're probably going to win the game. I mean, that's how bad Wake Forest offense is. So I like Syracuse in that game. Um, at Florida State, we don't even have to discuss that. Army should beat Army. Uh, Virginia is an interesting game, but Virginia is going to be a lot a lot better coach this year under Mendenhall, so I think that's probably a loss. But that's another game that's not completely, not completely inconceivable that Wake Forest could be in that game. And you get it at home, is that? And you do get it home in November, so um, hopefully you work out the kinks in your offense. And by working out the kinks, I mean hopefully you're putting up more than like 200 yards per game by that point in time. Um, at Louisville, loss. Clemson at home, just try to even come within two touchdowns of covering the spread. It's probably an accomplishment. Try to and just make Boston it to the end College, of the fourth quarter. I, I was, I was going to say, look, if you're – just try to get – a field goal on the board by the start of the fourth, and that's <laughs> good for you. Boston College, November 26th, at home to close out the season. They have a great chance to win that game because Boston College is so bad on offense, and Wake Forest is also so bad on offense. It could even be a 6-3 to three slugfest this year, Joey. Um, but I have them at 4-8 and eight because I just... I think they'll beat Tulane. I think they'll beat Delaware. They'll probably beat Army, and I think they'll beat BC to close out the season. I'm not really confident saying they'll win five games. I just don't think they're very good. Um, that's just kind of where they're at. Um, it's it's tough for Dave Clawson, right, because 
over three years, he's six and eighteen. So it's been uphill sledding. You know, to his credit, Wake Forest is an extremely tough place to recruit, um, just because you don't have the prestige in the football program, and it's a tough academic school, which isn't something to really shy away from. Um, and you're in North Carolina right now, competing against NC State and UNC, and then Duke has recruited pretty well um, also. So you're the worst North Carolina football school right now, and you have an uphill battle in recruiting. It's just a really tough job. So Dave Clawson's doing all he can. I don't think he's the right guy for the job, personally. He'll probably be gone after this season unless something miraculous were to happen to Wake Forest. Um, but I don't think it's entirely his fault. So just a really a, a tough job, a tough school to recruit to, and hopefully they can find themselves in a position down the road where they can uh, maybe improve and get back towards the middle of the Atlantic Division. I want to point out two more things about this this schedule. First of all, you look at the home slate in conference. Syracuse, Virginia, Clemson, Boston College. That is a, a really kind of advantageous thing for Wake Forest is getting Syracuse, Virginia, and Boston College all at home because those are probably your three most winnable conference games. And so that's a big deal, A. And B, the other, the other thing I want to point out is kind of kind of crazy is if you look at Bill Connolly's S&P Plus numbers and his win probabilities, Wake Forest is given a 45% or better chance to win six games. Whoa. 86% against Tulane, 97% against Delaware, 46% against Syracuse, 87% against Army, 55% against Virginia, 49% against Boston College. Wow, he's really high on Wake Forest there against Virginia and Syracuse. That surprises me. Yeah, and that's partially just what they were last year. Um, I think it helps to get those games again at home. Don't know, especially with Syracuse, what they're going to be this year versus last year. Uh, you figure they'll be improved some if if they can kind of get their identity crisis sorted out under a new coach. But this is a workable schedule, and it's not completely inconceivable that Wake Forest somehow in the year 2016 goes bowling. So... Time will tell. I, I don't have that high of expectations, but just know that that could potentially be the ceiling with, with how the schedule shakes out. It wouldn't be the first time that prediction has blown up in my face, but I am on the record with them going 4-8, and eight. and if they do anything more than that, I'll come out, I'll say that I'm wrong, but look, if they win four games, I think even that's an accomplishment. So maybe I'm just really underselling Wake Forest, but until I see otherwise... Um, or find out otherwise. I guess I get, I need to watch more than two or three of their games to kind of be swayed. I guess another way, but um, with their schedule, it's doable. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it's not doable that they can win more than four games. I think they can. I just I don't really have any confidence in them at all, especially after watching that BC game last year. That was one of the worst offensive performances I've ever seen in my entire life. So we'll just see what happens. I think we should probably both be fully ready to have some incorrect predictions at some point during this whole series. Mike, I think th- that has probably been about enough time on discussing Wake Forest. We should probably move on <laughs> to comparably interesting programs such as Louisville uh, and arguably a, a guy who, who might be one of the better players if he were to play at Wake Forest is Lamar Jackson, the quarterback. Best player on the team. I feel comfortable saying that, yes. <laughs> um so Louisville comes back in year three under Bobby Petrino, round two. They 
obviously last year was kind of the the coming out party for Lamar Jackson towards the end of the year. Highly talented guy. We've heard all the comparisons to guys like Michael Vick, very strong arm, very elusive runner, uh, good ball player. Louisville comes up with a new offensive coordinator this year after uh, Illinois took the old one, but at the end of the day, Bobby Petrino is running this offense, and he brings back a lot on the offensive side of the ball, Mike. Uh, they, they lose two starters on the offensive line, and an offensive line at that that was not particularly inspiring last year. It was not great. Um, they lose two starters up there, and other than that, they lose a running back who had seven carries for 18 yards on the year, and they bring back literally everybody else. This sets up really, really nicely for the Cardinals going into 2016. They're loaded, Joey. Um, one of the most talented teams in the ACC. Uh, I thought last year they were really close. Um, they weren't necessarily as close as I thought finishing the season at 8-5. and five. Um, But I think this is the year, especially if Lamar Jackson takes the next step throwing the football, we kind of talked about him at length um, in recent podcasts, you know, the 55% completion percentage last year, the fact that he's really elusive running the football. So um, in the essence of time, I'm going to go ahead and kind of focus on everybody else just because we know how talented Lamar Jackson is. Um, running back, you have Brandon Radcliffe coming back, 630 yards rushing last year, seven touchdowns. Um, that was second on the team in, in yards and touchdowns, so only Lamar Jackson. Receiving core deep, talented, Jamari Staples, James Quick, the top two receivers from last year, both over 600 yards, combined for eight touchdowns. A lot of talent there at receiver. Um, Jalen Smith, not to be confused with Notre Dame Jalen Smith. Um, he's a tight end for, uh, he played a little bit of tight end, a little bit of receiver uh, for Louisville last year. I expected they split him out more often this year at receiver. 376 yards and only one touchdown, but I think he'll take on a little bit of a bigger role in the position this year. Um, so their offense is loaded. A lot of really, really talented um, receivers. They got a very good running back, and then one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC, in Lamar Jackson. Uh, defensively, it's all about the linebacking core. Joey uh, Devontae Fields obviously came over from TCU a couple of years ago. Um, he was an honorable mention All ACC choice last year. This year's preseason All ACC selection. Um, he's going to be manning one linebacker position. Um, they have Keith Kelsey also at linebacker. He's a monster. Uh, six foot one senior uh, really anchors that defense, and he has been since even before Devontae Fields got there. Um, with Louisville and the way that they recruited under Charlie Strong, um, it was a real focus on the defense and the linebacker position, and we're kind of seeing the back end of that now. Um, and, you know, you and I talked about it a little bit. Bobby Petrino definitely will have to capitalize on you know, the defense being as good as it potentially could be this year because um, the offense will be able to carry the load, but they're going to be losing a lot of talent on defense following this season. And um, they have a lot of guys that can make a real difference there um, in the middle of that defense. A couple guys in the secondary. Uh, you got to talk about Tremaine Washington, the junior corner. He had a pretty solid year last year uh, for the Cardinals. Uh, Josh Harvey Clemens. Six foot five senior. The dude is a physical specimen. He had 88 tackles last year, um, leading the Louisville defense, which was 45th nationally in pass efficiency defense, which is pretty solid numbers uh, coming out of the ACC, um, behind only Clemson and Florida State. So I really like Louisville. Um, I, I like them on offense and on defense. 
Uh, they're loaded. They have a lot of talent. They have a lot of experience. Um, their quarterback's young and efficient and a guy who I think is just going to be improving and kind of focusing on trying to throw the football a little bit more this year than maybe just running the ball. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Louisville does uh, heading into the fall. Something you mentioned in there was the the defense needing to capitalize on what it is this year. So for those unaware, Louisville is kind of my second allegiance. I, I went to Georgia Tech, and that will always be my, my number one allegiance, but Louisville's number two for me, just having family roots in Kentucky and uh, my dad is from Louisville, and kind of growing up, I had to pick sides between Kentucky and Louisville, and so it's a big thing in my house. But so, so I'm a Louisville fan. That's that's my my second allegiance, so to speak. And the thing that I've thought about ever since basically Bobby Petrino was hired for a second time is this this defense is is not going to get better under Todd Grantham than it ever was under Charlie Strong. And so the whole the whole thing of the last two years has been Bobby Petrino needs to get the offense in order in time to compensate for a degrading defense. Basically, uh, I do not believe in Todd Grantham's coaching and such. He was a hire out of out of Georgia, and it was one of these where the hiring was announced, and a whole bunch of Georgia fans looked at each other, smiling like he's gone. Wow, like, you know, it was kind of a, a little bit of a mind-boggling kind of, of a hire just because he wasn't doing a great job at Georgia. He's got a, a little bit of a shaky history, and so I don't think this defense is getting any better under Todd Grantham. And so luckily this year it looks like the Louisville offense is going to be about as potent as uh, as we've seen under Petrino and, and also is just going to reflect, I think, Petrino's uh, – kind of offensive prowess, uh, so to speak. You do lose a lot up front, uh, especially Sheldon Rankins. Uh, was a, a first-round draft pick. James Burgess, a, a big linebacker there. Josh Harvey Clemens, you're right, is a physical specimen in the secondary. I think he has a lot of boneheaded moments and, and makes kind of some dumb plays. So I think that that kind of game intelligence and such takes away from his physical talent. But bring back a lot in the secondary. There's still quite a bit there on defense, but I think it's this year is about it if we're talking about a team that has a, a strong, reliable defense. Luckily, I think that the offense is going to be able to catch up here in time. One of the other things that I think is kind of crazy is if you look at the receiving core on this team, there are a ton of huge guys over there. Jalen Smith, you mentioned 6'4", 184. Jamari Staples, 6'4", 195. Cole Hikatini, the tight end, 6'5", 240. Devontae Pete, 6'6", 203. Mickey Crum, tight end, 6'4", 257. Just big dudes out there on the outside at, at Louisville. Um, Just dudes, Joey. Guys being dudes at Louisville. Guys being dudes. Trying to take a page out of that book at Boston College. Uh, um, Hopefully not offensively, though. Yeah, definitely <laughs> not offensively. That is yeah. that is the wrong book to be taking pages out of. Yeah. Um, so... I think there's a lot to like about Louisville. There is talent. That defense is probably going to be uh, pretty good again. The other guy that you mentioned, uh, Devontae Fields, he was a guy that kind of came on late last year. He, he As talented as he, as he was at TCU, winning Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year as a true freshman, great physical player. He did not have a sack in the first six games of the year last year for Louisville. And then in the back seven, he had 11 sacks. 
So starting with the Boston College game, he had one sack against them, one sack against Wake Forest, none against Syracuse, one against Virginia, two against Pittsburgh, two and a half against Kentucky, and three against A&M. So he finished the year very strong. And if he can kind of carry that momentum into 2016, he's going to be a really dangerous force on that defensive line uh, coming after quarterbacks in the ACC. I was going to say he might actually grow into kind of what Louisville was expecting when they got him two years ago, um, kind of finally reaching that potential that we saw him flash, obviously, at TCU. Yeah, definitely a guy that I, I got about halfway through last year, and I was wondering to myself, I mean, what happened? Because this is a guy that obviously came with this huge billing, and again, like I said, the light kind of came on, and he next thing you know, he was taking down the quarterback like we got used to at TCU, so... Now, if we look at the schedule for Louisville, uh, it is not particularly easy, as it's never going to be when you're in the Atlantic and you got to face Florida State and Clemson, but it's not particularly, I guess, worrisome either. So, start out home against Charlotte. In the, in, if we're looking at the out-of-conference, you start out home against Charlotte. End of September, you go to Marshall. End of November, you go to Houston, and then you have home against Kentucky. So, as far as Charlotte, Marshall, Houston, and Kentucky. Houston, obviously, the biggest threat, I think, of those four, and especially having to do that game on the road. But it, as good as we kind of expect Louisville to be, and hopefully they, they get Houston there at the end of the year when they are, are really kind of chugging on offense, I think Louisville goes 4-0 and over that out-of-conference stretch, Mike. I agree, and I think their toughest game is against Houston, like you said, um, because it's on the road and Houston can put up points to score with Louisville. Um, I have confidence they'll beat Wake Forest, or, I'm sorry, I have confidence they'll beat Kentucky. Um, <laughs> Charlotte's, Charlotte's a win. Marshall's a win. I have confidence they'll beat Wake Forest as well, obviously, but we're talking just not, you know, out-of-conference games right now. Um, but, yeah, no, I think Houston's definitely the most daunting if you're looking out-of-conference, and um, the fact that it's on the road kind of adds a little bit more intrigue. But I think Louisville can definitely get by them, assuming everybody's healthy late in the season kind of interesting too that this is an out of conference road game against Houston and not a not a short trip either that's on a Thursday night which is maybe a little bit of a trap um, I don't know yeah I mean it, it looks pretty pretty doable and then you figure so your your conference slate other than that at Syracuse home against Florida State at Clemson home against Duke home against NC State at Virginia at Boston College home against actual Wake Forest which is, again, two weeks before they play the Wake Forest of the SEC. But it's <laughs> – there we go. Um, yeah, shot at, shot at Kentucky there. Yeah. And, and I am not afraid to take those. Uh, the game on here that stands out to me as a, a very high potential and, and I'll say dangerous game but not so much dangerous for Louisville is home against Florida State. They, they played Florida State at home on a Thursday night a couple of years ago. And they damn near beat that team, with even with Jameis Winston as their quarterback. It took a late comeback for the Seminoles to end up winning. Florida State better be ready for that game, and especially if they don't have Sean McGuire back and they're they're still using DeAndre, presumably DeAndre Francois as their quarterback. Uh, that could be a bit of a dangerous game and one that, that Louisville might be able to pull an upset in. And if they can do that, I can see an 11-1 finish here. I, I'm going to chalk up the Clemson game as a loss. But if Florida State doesn't beat them, I don't know who else will. 
The Florida State game is now a heck of a lot more interesting, assuming Sean McGuire's still out. Um, that's right around the time they think that he might come back. Um, we're assuming right now that DeAndre Francois doesn't tear it up in the first you know, couple games for Florida State. If we're going to assume that he plays like a freshman should play and doesn't play like Jameis Winston played when he was a freshman um, back three or four years ago, um, I think that's a very interesting matchup in mid-September, a game that I'm with you. I think Louisville can definitely pull an upset there, especially if Florida State's kind of still meddling with the quarterback position. I'm not really sure who got who the guy's going to be, um, which I think could really be the case for Florida State, could, may, could maybe lead to their downfall um, for as talented as they are. But I'm with you. 11-1, um, and one, not out of the question. Clemson, obviously, is the one loss in my mind in October. You are going on the road. Now, Louisville played Clemson pretty tough last year at home, but um, going on the road to Death Valley is not an easy game. Um, so I like Clemson there. And then the only other loss on their schedule I'm looking at, really, in my mind, is Florida State because you're playing outside of that. NC State is probably another tough conference game but you get them at home and then you go on the road to Virginia they should mop the floor there and they're going on the road to Boston College Boston College also played them tough last year but I just don't I mean I just don't see that happen I just don't see BC winning that game at all I'm sorry um but yeah unless they drop one out of conference towards the end of the year to Houston um I think 11 and 1 is not out of the question but to play it safe I'm going to say 10 and 2 because I'm just going to say losses to Florida State and Clemson, and then they'll finish third in the Atlantic and just finish the year 10-2, and two, go to a really good New Year's Bowl game. Um, so I'm going to play it safe at 10-2, and two, but 11-1, and one, definitely not out of the question. I think you got to reasonably put it anywhere between 9-3 and three and 11-1, and one, because I do think that that game at Houston is – it has some dangerous makings about it. Again, a Thursday night on the road, not an easy road trip. Um I you know I, I can't feel great about that one and, and you know in a sense of like I'll bet you right now a hundred dollars they win that game you know it's kind of one of those I think they'll win it and they probably should win it but things can happen um, I I think I'm right there with you I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick ten and two and and maybe hope for eleven and one but it's it's definitely definitely reasonable to think they're gonna lose probably two of the home against Florida State at Clemson at Houston. Is that, I don't know, Mike, would you be, would you be afraid of that road trip to Houston? Is that, a, is that reasonable or is that kind of, uh, am I overthinking it here? It's on, it's on short rest. Houston can score in bunches and it's on the road. So no, I don't think you're in the wrong thinking that. I just think Louisville has too much talent. Um, even though it will be on short rest late in the season, I, I still like Louisville to win that game, but it's something to definitely watch for uh, late in the season. Louisville really figures to be probably a top 15 team by the end of the year. If they can go 11-1, and one, they should be playing in a New Year's Six Bowl game. I, I think so, especially considering who they would have had to beat uh, to get there. They would have a signature win. Also, that Florida State game, sneaky potential to be uh, a game day site, I think. you got to look at that yep. as an option. I don't know what... I agree. Yeah, and I don't know what the rest of the national schedule looks like that week, but there's potential there. All right, Mike. Let's move on to last... Team preview here. We're going to move on to Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, Brian Kelly's boys. Um, Notre Dame comes in. There's a lot to like about this team as well. They they suffered a lot of injuries last year, and now they've got a whole bunch of guys that have a whole bunch of experience and a whole bunch of talent. 
And I'll be damned if Notre Dame might not be like a top 10 team in the country next year or this, this coming year. Um, lots to like. Biggest loss on offense is going to be C.J. Procise at running back, who really was kind of an improvised running back. He uh, he was a converted wide receiver after Torian Folston and Josh Adams and who knows who, everybody went down. You also lose Will Fuller, Chris Brown, Amir Carlisle, and Corey Robinson. Those were four of your top five wide receivers. Not that there's any shortage of talent there to replace them. Also lose three offensive linemen, uh, Roddy Stanley, All-American left tackle, and Nick Martin, the center, who's now playing for the Texans here in Houston, and Steve Elmer, starting right guard. So there, there's some loss happening here, but there's also some returning players coming back uh, that could really make this Notre Dame team very, very dangerous again in 2016. Yeah, I agree with you, Joey. And the one thing that's kind of interesting about this whole um, situation with Notre Dame is even though they're losing a lot of talent on offense, um, a lot of the guys that they are returning do have some playing experience behind them. Um, up front, Mike McGlinchey obviously has played a lot um, over the last few years. Quentin Nelson has played. Um, Sam Mostafer, who's expected to be a starting center, um, obviously didn't play a ton last year, but uh, they're hoping he can slide into a role. Um, has gotten some playing time in the past. Alex Barr's at right tackle. Um, Colin McGovern, he's expected to be the right guard, and he's moving into a senior season, so he's seen enough you know, um, not not a ton of playing time, but he's seen enough at the college level at this point to step in, hopefully play a pretty good role for Notre Dame in that regard. Um, when looking at the rest of the offense for Notre Dame, I think the one thing you have to talk about is the quarterback position. So Deshaun Kaiser obviously had a spectacular year last year, um, throwing for 2,800 yards and 21 touchdowns as a freshman. And it's really interesting because the court, B quarterback of the future for Notre Dame was expected to be expected to be Malik Zaire, who blew out his ankle in the Virginia game. Um, now Zaire is squarely in the mix here at Notre Dame um, this fall, and Brian Kelly hasn't ruled out that both quarterbacks will play um, heading into the season. Just because you know Zaire was a guy who came on late two years ago um, in 2014 when Everett Golson was having all sorts of issues with the turnover bug, and um, Zaire came in had a pretty good bowl game. So he had a lot of momentum heading into last year. Obviously, sees the starting quarterback job until he got hurt. So it'll be interesting to see what Notre Dame does at quarterback. Um, Deshaun Kaiser obviously stepped in admirably. And for all the injuries Notre Dame had um, on offense, it was pretty remarkable that they were able to eke out 10 wins last year. Um, like you mentioned, bringing back Tarian Folston's huge. Um, another guy who got hurt uh, early in the season last year. They had a number of guys step in. C.J. Prosites, obviously, who's moved on to the NFL. Josh Adams came on as a freshman late in the season. Um, another guy who, who stepped in and played well. They're losing Will Fuller at receiver. Obviously losing Ronnie Stanley on the offensive line is gigantic just because he guarded the blind side. Um, but to the receiver position, you're losing a guy like Will Fuller, a real, real deep threat like that. That's going to be tough to replace. But you've got some guys who are proven there who have played before. Uh, Equinemius St. Brown, say that three times fast. He's a sophomore, um, played a good bit last year as a freshman, but really was just an extra receiver. He's going to step in, hopefully play in a more advanced role. Um, Torrey Hunter, uh, this Torrey Hunter Jr., excuse me, uh, the son of the Torrey Hunter, uh, former baseball player. Son um, of Torrey Hunter Sr., as it were. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very good baseball player in his own right. Torrey Hunter Jr. decided to go his own route in football, and he's done a pretty nice job for Notre Dame thus far. Um, losing Corey Robinson, it's interesting. He ended up um, 
you know, retiring actually this summer because of the concussion issues that he suffered much of last year. The son of the great, the Admiral David Robinson, of course. Um, and if I'm not so, mis- a lot. Of, and if I'm not mistaken, go- Corey Robinson is also the student body president at Notre Dame. If I'm not- he is. He is the student body president. He wears many hats, Joey, and now we can step into more of a role as student body president other than just being name only and a figurehead. Um, <laughs> that's not a jab at Corey Robinson. I'm sure he did a great job there. Um, okay, defensively, before I say anything else, it'll you know, <laughs> irritate a bunch of people. Um, you know that Notre Dame fans will not hesitate to at you. Yeah, no, I know they won't. And I would, um, they're very they're very vocal on Twitter. Generally. And I would be remiss if we did not remind the listeners that Notre Dame is Mike's second allegiance. They are, so don't don't think that I'm taking all these jabs at Notre Dame. It's all in good fun because I will be rooting for them all season long. <laughs> um, defensive end, Andrew Trombetti. He's a junior. He'll get a good amount of playing time. Jerry Tillery on the defensive line uh, tackle. He played a, a good bit last year. Uh, as a freshman, they're bringing back Jerron Jones, which is pretty big because he blew out an Achilles last year um, in the preseason. He was expected to play a huge role at nose tackle. Uh, finally, he's going to step in and play this year a good bit. Um, Isaac Rochelle, a senior defensive end, played a ton for Notre Dame last year. Had a very productive season for the Irish. Um, the one big loss on the on the de- offensive line on the defensive line is Sheldon Day. Um, he's moved on to the NFL. Really a run stopper in the middle um, middle of the line that they'll really miss. Um, linebacker core. You know, you talk about Jalen Smith. The guy's an absolute monster. They're really going to miss him. Um, obviously had that kind of horrific knee injury in the Ohio State game. Um, was drafted by Dallas Cowboys. He's still rehabbing. Chances are he may not play in the NFL this year, but they're looking, hopefully, for him to be a contributor down the line, which would be huge because he was quite the player at Notre Dame. They're really going to miss him heading into uh, this season. Um, but stepping in, they got Niles Morgan, Greer Martini. Those are both two guys. Greer Martini, very underrated name, by the way. Um, one, uh, they're two guys who have played a good bit um, in their first two years on campus. They'll both be juniors. Um, good news for the Irish is that they're secondary. They bring back a ton of experience. Devin Butler, he's going to be a senior, uh, six foot one, two hundred pounder, very good in pass coverage. Uh, Cole Luke, the guy who lines up opposite him, maybe maybe better than uh, Devin Butler. Even Cole Luke was very productive player for Notre Dame last season. They're returning Drew Tranquil on the back end of the secondary at safety. He blew out his ACL last year. They're going to have him back. And, of course, Max Redfield um, at free safety. He's coming into his junior year as well. So a lot of experience on the Notre Dame defense, even though they're losing guys like a Sheldon Day, like a Joe Schmidt, who I didn't even mention, was the second-leading tackler last year behind uh, Jalen Smith. Um, so the Irish have a lot of good players coming back, but – they're still losing a lot of starting talent, which is something that we'll definitely have to watch early in the season. Yeah, the biggest concern probably on defense for Notre Dame this year is going to be that they, they lose their top two pass rushers by sack count. So uh, Romeo Aquara and Sheldon Day, nine sacks, four sacks, respectively, both gone. Uh, and so the question now is to you know how to, how to replace that. But that said, I mean – Notre Dame. Let's not act like Notre Dame has ever been a uh, an underdog in the world of recruiting. They, they, recruiting to Notre Dame has never been the, 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 a particularly tough thing, and yet it kind of seems to me like Notre Dame might be about as talented as they've been, especially on defense in in several years. Uh, so, as much as they've got guys that they got to replace in the starting lineup, there's no shortage of talent to do that with, uh, and even. Some of the guys that have been backups in previous years are also, they were pretty vaunted recruits, guys that, 
have all sorts of physical ability that they're going to be able to step into these roles. And so, um, Mike, and maybe you can speak a little more to this as a general trend, but as much as Notre Dame is a, a pretty good recruiting spot anyways, I mean, is it, is it crazy to think that they are about as talented as they've been in several years? I would agree with that. Um, you just look at the offensive talent, Joey, um, especially at the running back position. Having a guy like Tarian Folston and then having Josh Adams coming in right behind him and then imagine if C.J. Procise didn't leave for the NFL. You'd have another guy that can all of a sudden take a five-yard swing pass and take it to the house. Um, they have a bunch of guys like that on their roster. You lose a guy like Will Fuller, you have Torrey Hunter to step in. Um, you have C.J. Sanders, who we didn't even didn't even talk about, was one of the prize recruits of their recruiting class two years ago, a slot receiver at five foot eight. He should play a pretty big role this year. Um, he, in a limited role last year, played pretty well. Um, Notre Dame's got two of the more talented quarterbacks in the ACC, um, or the extension of the ACC, I guess. I still consider them kind of ACC just with the schedule they play at this point. But they have two of the more talented quarterbacks probably in the country that nobody really talks about because um, they're going to be splitting reps. I mean, Deshaun Kaiser looked as good as any quarterback in the country when he was at his best last year, um, spreading the rock around. And, and the way Notre Dame operates their offense is they rely heavily on that running game to open up the pass. And when Deshaun Kaiser had some time to throw – um, with that offensive line and the receiving court that they had, um, he looked as good as any quarterback in the country when he was at his best. So a lot of talent for Notre Dame. The recruiting has been really strong. It's pretty hard to believe that Brian Kelly's entering his seventh year in South Bend already. Um, but each year I feel like the recruiting has, um, has improved and, and Notre Dame's brand has been as good as it's been on the football field. Uh, since they were most prominent in the 80s. Um, and Notre Dame, they were one of the more overrated programs in college football, I would argue, um, for a span of about 20 years there, from like the mid-90s to probably um, around 2010, 2011, um, when Brian Kelly ended up being hired as the head coach in Notre Dame. Um, you know, having the Charlie Weiss years, they were just off and on. You had one good year under Ty Willingham. But... Notre Dame never really had a consistent team year in and year out. There was a top 15 um, squad, and now they have that. So for Notre Dame, it's all a matter of taking the next step. Obviously, they made a national championship appearance a couple years back. You didn't have to be a genius to look at that game and realize that they were going to be completely overmatched. But I think when looking at Notre Dame and the way they played against LSU in the bowl game two years ago, you realize that Notre Dame kind of started to belong on that field with a bunch of SEC teams um, if, if they were to ever match up with them. And that's just a testament to Brian Kelly and the ability he has recruiting. So Notre Dame's definitely heading in the right direction. I think they're a much stronger team on paper last year and even this year than they were with their national championship team, um, or the team that played for national championship back in 2012. And um, I, I think that's an argument you can definitely make just because they lucked themselves into a lot of wins that season and they kind of backed into the national championship game and then, of course, got smoked by Alabama in a game that was over by middle of the second quarter. Um, and, and I think the Irish are talented enough and have depth at almost every position where they can suffer the losses that they suffered, not only through um, graduation and players moving on to the NFL, but also to injury, as we saw last year. Notre Dame suffered more injuries to their starting units than maybe any team in the entire country and still managed to win 10 games. So that's just a testament to Brian Kelly and his ability to recruit. So I think Notre Dame's definitely heading in the right direction. 
Has it really been? This is going to be year seven under Brian Kelly up there. Hard to believe. Fifty-five and twenty-three, Joey, in seventh in uh, six seasons. So he's heading into his seventh year in South Bend already. It's pretty crazy to believe that already. That is crazy. I, I it seems so recent that he was brought in, but wow. I mean, I guess so. Um, okay. Two more things I want to point out about the defense. One is a big problem last year for this defense was creating turnovers. They did not do much of that at all. Uh, They only created 14 turnovers on the year across 13 games, which is not good. You have to wonder if that was maybe a little bit of a luck issue or if it's a coaching issue uh, with Brian Van Gorder being the the man in charge on the defense there. That man's a nut, Joe. (laughs) I would want to have a beer with that guy sometime. Um, Absolutely. Although I don't, I'm not sure there's ever having a beer with Brian Van Gorder. He's probably only having about six beers with him. He seems like that type. Um, and he'd be pissed the entire time. Also. He is He is likely an angry drunk, if I just had to guess. Um, angry sober. <laughs> an angry sober as well, yes. Um, yeah, so a lot of uh, not a lot of turnovers, which is, is odd, given how much talent they have and everything. So you wonder if that's a coaching issue or just a luck thing. Uh, we can kind of see this year. But the other thing I wanted to point out that seems odd to me is that the the roster that I am looking at right now only has six linebackers on it for a team that runs a 3-4. So for they're going to have four linebackers on the field in their base set, and they've only got six linebackers on the roster. Now, my assumption would be that maybe some of these defensive ends that were listed you know, as, as being brought in as recruits, guys like Dalen Hayes, will be moved to like a pass rushing outside linebacker type of role. And uh, when it really comes down to it, that's what they're going to be positioned as. But kind of just an interesting little tidbit that uh, losing three linebackers and it leaves them with only about six true linebackers coming into the season. Um, we're running a little short on time here, Mike, but let's look at the schedule real quick. So this is frustrating because like I, I like to start with talking about out-of-conference games, but with Notre Dame, <laughs> <laughs> everything's an out of conference. I mean, game. technically, yeah, everything is kind of out of conference, uh, and also nothing at the same time. So, anyways, um, the, the the real dangerous games on here that I see: home against Michigan State, September seventeenth; home against Stanford, October fifteenth; home against Miami, October 29th. at USC, November twenty sixth. Maybe home against Virginia Tech, November nineteenth. So really, of the the toughest games that Notre Dame is going to play are all at home. Now the exception here is probably again at USC at the very end of the season, and also at Texas to open the season. I I don't know that anybody has a really good gauge of what Texas is going to be yet, but this sets up pretty nicely for Notre Dame at least from a home and away standpoint. So only three true road games for Notre Dame this year, but they do have three neutral site games, one against Syracuse, which is playing in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, uh, the second against Navy, which will be in Jacksonville, Florida this year, and then a game November 12th against Army where they're playing in San Antonio. So they have three neutral sites to go on along with their three true road games at Texas, at NC State, and at USC. On paper, um, this is a very interesting schedule for Notre Dame. I think it might be a little bit more difficult than some might make it out to be. Um, there's a lot of games that you could potentially slip up. 
at Texas in the opener, I think, is a huge game because Notre Dame's going to be juggling quarterbacks, I believe, um, going into the season. Nothing's been announced yet as to who the starter's going to be. I think Texas is going to be improved. How improved they're going to be um, kind of remains to be seen, but I think they're going to be more talented than 38-3 whooping that Notre Dame put on them last year. Um, the fact that it's playing in Austin, I think, is going to play a big role into the fact that I think Texas will hang around in that game, but I think Notre Dame ends up winning. Uh, following week, they play Nevada at home. That should be a win. Michigan State, I agree, is the one game to watch for. Let me get through the wins first, though. I think at Texas, at home against Nevada is a win. So that's two wins. Home against Duke should be a win. Syracuse neutral site, I would think, would be a win. At NC State is a tricky one because NC State brings that crowd. Um, one of the best home, home field advantages in the ACC. Um, very underrated. But I think Notre Dame wins that game. Um, Stanford and Miami, that's really tough. The good news about the Miami game, the second of those two games, is that you get you get two weeks rest there. So you play, my, you play Stanford and then you get a bye week before playing Miami. I think Notre Dame is going to drop one of those two games, uh, personally, um, even though they're both at home. But I wouldn't doubt if Notre Dame wins both of those, honestly. Um, and then they have Navy, Army, and Virginia Tech, two, the first two neutral site, then Virginia Tech at home. I think they win all three of those games. I think at USC is a very tough game. They've always struggled going to play out in L.A. towards the end of the year. Um, Notre Dame ended up winning a game there um, back in 2012 to go to a national championship. Um, but they've always struggled out playing in L.A. in the Coliseum, so that's a game that I think they could drop as well. So I think Michigan State, USC, and then one of Stanford and Miami are the games we're going to have to watch for as far as losses for Notre Dame. I think... I'm going to go with 10-2, and two, um, but I think this could easily be a 9-3 and three type slate. But this sets up well for Notre Dame if they're healthy and they play up to their potential in offense and defense. There's not a game on their schedule that I think they won't have a chance in. Um, they have just as good a chance of running the table as they do going 9-3 and three or 8-4 and four and dropping a game that we don't expect. Yeah, I mean, several maybe dangerous games on the schedule, but not a ton of games that I wouldn't feel good about as a Notre Dame fan. I mean... I think 10-2 and two is probably a good projection here. Figure they drop a couple somewhere along the way just because, again, at Texas, Michigan State, Stanford, Miami, USC, there's – if you go 3-2 and two against that slate, you're doing, you're doing pretty well as a program, frankly. Um, I, I don't know – I think USC is probably the highest ceiling kind of potential, you know – good team on the list. The question becomes what Clay Helton does in year one out in L.A. But I, I feel comfortable predicting Notre Dame to go 10-2 and two against this schedule. I, I don't know if I want to pick out specifically which games they'll lose. Um, don't know what Stanford will be in kind of the first year after Kevin Hogan leaves, but you still got Christian McCaffrey. Miami, again, we don't really know what to think of them. Obviously a lot of talent. New coach should be pretty good. Like you said, you can't totally just toss out that at NC State game. I mean, that's a that's a tough road trip for anybody to take, especially when you got somebody like a Notre Dame coming to town. That's always gonna always gonna move the meter with your home team. So, ten and two sounds right to me. I wouldn't be surprised if they went anywhere between I don't know, even like eight and four and twelve and zero. I mean, I think that's all fully within the realm of possibility, just with what this schedule sets up as, but. Notre Dame is talented as they're going to, as talented of a team as you're going to find in the country, and so they'll be able to stick around with anybody on their schedule. 
even this year when they've got several top-notch opponents coming their way. So uh, I, I look for Notre Dame to have a pretty good season here, Mike. And I think the only way they make it into college football playoff, I know that's something that I'm sure some of our listeners will be wondering. I think, in my opinion, the only way they go to the college football playoff with um, with the talent that some of the top teams in the country have this year, the only way that Notre Dame gets into the playoff, in my opinion, is if they go 12-0. Um, I think if they lose any one of their games on their schedule, um, they'll have a lot of trouble getting in. But that's personally because I'm high on Alabama, obviously. I think Clemson is the team to beat in the ACC. Um, I think Florida State's going to be very good. I really like Oklahoma's chances this year of getting back to the playoff. Um, So it's not an indictment on Notre Dame as much as how high I am on some of the other teams in the country. But... um, if Notre Dame is going to lose a game, they need to do it early in the season, and they need to do it to a team like Michigan State. Um, and if they're going to do it to Texas in the opener, Texas better be damn good the rest of the season if Notre Dame wants any chance of getting in the playoff or they, their hopes could be done in week one. It's one of the things that our friends at the the Solid Verbal would call the, the be cool kind of thing is if you're going to lose to Texas, Texas, you got to be cool and like actually be pretty good because – if not, it makes Notre Dame look really bad. Um, I, I think the very last game on the schedule they can lose, if they're looking to go to the playoff and you know maybe make it in at eleven and one, is probably that Stanford game in mid October. Uh, Stanford is a team that would have some credibility about it, and that that also would come after a game against Michigan State, which would also have some credibility to it. And so I think if you lose to either of those two, you could still reasonably get into the playoff and be in that top four when the first weekend of December rolls around. Anything after that is probably just going to be a little too a little too late, you know, to kind of be able to make up some ground. So, definitely some playoff potential here in Notre Dame. Um, maybe maybe the most outside of I don't know Clemson, Florida State, and the ACC. But uh, again, figures to be a, a pretty good year uh, up in South Bend, Mike. Yep, I'm on I'm on board with that. Um... Health is going to play a huge factor. I agree with you on the Stanford premise. That's a game they can lose and probably still get in, but that's contingent on Miami being as good as advertised, Virginia Tech being a much-improved team from last year's 6-6 six and six squad, or 7-6, and six, I guess, if you count the bowl game, and then USC improving under year one with Clay Helton. Yep. Well, Mike, that does it. An hour and 25 minutes later, Joey, it doesn't. Hey, we had to give Wake Forest their due as a, as a football program, so every minute has been worth it, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, more jokes in this week's podcast than we have in the previous five, that's for sure. Um, so it was all worth it, in my opinion. I mean, I thought we were funny, so it's good enough for me. But anyways, this so as always, this has been fun. Um, we talked about Wake Forest maybe kind of progressing a little bit this year. Louisville uh, being probably a fun, secretly good team to watch this year. Notre Dame uh, being every bit as good as we kind of think they could be, assuming they can kind of stay healthy and such, which they struggled with last year. And that closes out the ACC, Mike. That is uh, that is our 14-plus-1 teams in the conference and kind of what to expect from them. So... Where do we go from here? Uh, well, next week we're going to talk about the kind of overall conference predictions. Who's going to win it? Who's going to win certain awards? Uh, things like that. So do you have division champions in mind that you are going to go ahead and be predicting? I do. I have 
I have my division winners in my head, so I'm pretty pumped to uh, discuss that next week. Well, good. I, I look forward to discussing those with our readers and or listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is something that's going to take some getting used to, is calling them listeners and not readers. You get you do enough writing, and eventually it's just a natural thing to call them readers. But I was going to say, when you write as much as we do, this is kind of what you get. Yeah. You get uh, both sides now. We're writing, listening. We're kind of jumping into this media side of things now. So we'll just have to see what happens here uh, down the line. Probably fair to say there's not a lot of reading done around this podcast. But anyways, until next week, when we kind of finish out our season preview, and then after that, I think we're previewing week one. Uh, until then... If you want to reach us, you can hit us up on Twitter. I am at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel ACC. We are at BC Podcast ACC. You send us an email, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe on SoundCloud and on iTunes and on Google Play and rate and review and all those neat podcast things. Go do all that. Um, come find me. I'm from the Rumble Seat. Go find him on insidetheacc.com. Uh, we have enjoyed this. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. I don't know. Speak for yourself, Mike, but I've enjoyed it, Joe, (laughs) as always. This has been fun. Uh, Until next week, go ACC.